Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend, Chabruta Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yuma, daf Ayin Hey, page 75. This daf is chock full of many things, and Anne and I, when we were preparing this, we basically said, we're not going to get to everything. So I think we're just going to sort of go back and forth quickly and just highlight a couple of things that really struck us about this particular daf. Uh, the beginning of the daf sort of goes through a bunch of machlokot between uh, Rav, uh, between Rabbi Yami and Rabbi Asi, where they take different psukim and try to explain them. One had one explanation, one had the other, another explanation, doesn't attribute who has which particular explanation, but just sort of gives the machloket itself. Uh, the one that I wanted to discuss here was the Agavalev Ish Yeshachana. Uh, this is quoting a pasuk from Mishlei, chapter 12, verse 25, which says, there's a care in a man's heart, meaning a daga, worry, in somebody's house, in somebody's heart, he should sort of quash it yeshachana. So Rabbi As, Rabbi Ami, Rabbi Asi, right? They, what did they say about this? Chadamar yeshachana midato, chadamar yeshachana laacherin. So one said he should sort of push it out of his mind, right? That if you are worrying about something, you should try to get it out of your uh, mind. Um, and the other one said that he should tell it to other people, he should share it. Um, and that will sort of make him worry less. Um, so I was thinking about this in terms of modern approaches to anxiety, right? And so one approach is, you know, one where you sort of try to do other things to occupy your mind, right? Whether it would be meditation, read a book, doing something to, um, you know, di to distract yourself. And then the other one is, you know, to share it with other people, right? Which I guess would sort of be our modern version of talk therapy. Um, <laughs> we're sort of finding somebody. So I, I just thought this was a lovely uh, little ketta here on the DAF um, that I think really gives two different approaches to how we deal with sort of challenges that we have. I tend to be a very anxious person, not tend to. I am an anxious person. Um, so um, I'm, I sort of subscribe to the second one. I like to talk through my anxiety, I don't find that sort of giant, just trying to push it out of my mind doesn't particularly work for me. Um, but I thought this just was a lovely little nugget here that I think describes two very different approaches. Does a person work on it by themselves or is it something that they sort of share with others as a way to deal with it? I love, of course, I love how it's applicable to today. The part of it that's less applicable to today, I think, is the greater context, which I think, you know, you articulated so well yesterday which is that we're talking here about how the generation in the Midbar was really tense. They were anxious over whether they were going to get the man, right? Meaning, fine, they had faith that it was going to come. But the, it was an open question for them, as I said yesterday, in a way that it, it's not for us when we look back at it. And so then when the Gemara here comes and talks about how did people deal with their anxiety, you know, I feel like it's the flip side of how do people deal with their amuna, right? How do they deal with the question of the man and whether it would arrive tomorrow? And and now we can generalize from that like more local discussion to the greater discussion of anxiety in general. I think it's really um, I think it's really interesting how in this on this particular daf, perhaps more than I've paid attention to it in elsewhere anyway, whether it's happening elsewhere, I'm not sure. There is a like a springboarding off of the topic at hand, which is very much the man, right? The man in the desert um, to these like, I don't know, little bits of wisdom that apply elsewhere. And as you said, we're not going to get to them all. 
by a long shot, but it is kind of the daf does this, you know, between let's talk about the man. Okay. Let's talk about where we, you know, learn from that to other things. Um, I think it happens a few times on the staff. Um, okay. I want to talk about, I'm going to jump down a little bit. Still on Amanda Aleph. Um, there's a discussion, you know, again, it's the, there's complaining going on. This is part of the man story, right? In Bamidbar. Part of the man story is the complaining that, that in Egypt, they had all this to do, right? They had all this fish. They had all these wonderful things to eat in Egypt. And it's not so clear that that was true at all, just in terms of the text of what they had when they were slaves in Egypt. But this is the complaint. Um, so so this is, um, there's a, a citation from Bamidbar, Perak Yudalf, chapter 11. So this is the verse that says, we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt for nothing, meaning the implication is there, it was free, and wasn't that wonderful. So the question is, and, and here it is, meaning some, some of you will know this as a very famous discussion of um, how metaphorical is this comment about the fish from the text of the Torah, right? It, or were they talking about fish, eating fish? Or, and this is the, the second view here, and we're not told wh- which Rav and Shmuel, who held what. It's just one says and one says. Um, as opposed to usually when they have a halachic debate, we know, you know, they're going to have a debate and for di- various topics we're going to follow Rav and for other topics we're going to follow Shmuel. In this case, we don't have their identities. Um, I mean, for the particular views. And the second view where it says Arayot, the implication is that the Torah in Egypt, right? The Torah hadn't been given. So certain incestuous relations had not been for, forbidden. So the complaint then is everything was chinam. Everything was open and available. And it, you know, suggests that there was a, this interpretation, which is obviously more metaphorical, is springboarding to um, a, a level of freedom, let's say, that is not talking about fish, but about the way people may have been free, promiscuous, Amongst each other. Um, so then the Gemara continues. Arayot. Um, no, sorry. Manda manda dagim. The person who says of these two, Rav and Shmuel, the one who says dagim, diftiv no chal. The verse says we'll eat. Right. So that sounds like fish. Right. Meaning it sounds like we're talking about actual food. So then it makes sense that the that the view would be that this is not metaphorical. They're talking about fish. Umanda mar arayot diftiv chinam. The one who says that they're talking about forbidden sexual relations is talking about the idea of for nothing because they're obviously not eating their fish for free. So what's the free? And it doesn't necessarily mean without paying money, but a, a freer approach, let's say. So the Gemara continues, But then what are you, you going to do, right? This is, this is classic Gemara um, if you have two opinions and they use the verses in different ways. The Both sides have to be able to account for the other's interpretation of the words that that view uses right? That it doesn't contradict their own view. Meaning, we have a term nochal, that's supposed to mean fish. What is the person who says ariot going to do with the fact that it says nochal? So why does it say eight, right? And the answer, according to the Gemara, is for the opinion that says that it's really talking about ariot, it's really metaphorical. It's a euphemism. It's saying it in a nicer way than if they had been you know, a crasser comment about sexual relations. There's a verse in Proverbs that uses the phrase 
achila, eating, um, where it's very clear that it is um, euphemistic in that sense. Um, because it's talking about wickedness, right? It's not talking about eating. It's talking about sexual liaison. Um, and it, but again, the term achila is there, which then becomes the proof text to say achila can be euphemistic to mean sexual uh, promiscuity or at least the relationship itself. But according to the one who says fish, then what, what is that person going to do with this strange use of the word chinam, this free, free in the verse? So the Gemara says that they, they would bring the fish from the river, which is a hefker property, meaning nobody owns the Nile. So they bring their fish, and so then it would be essentially as if it were free, even though the Egyptians were not giving them free food, right? It's that they were taking the fish from the water, and that's technically an ownerless sex, uh, uh, place, I guess. The Amar Mar it says, and not only that, right, Hashem steps in, that when B'nai Israel were standing there in the Nile drawing water from the river, then God would make sure that there were little fish that would show up, and then they could take them, and then they would, they would bring them home, so to speak, that they would have access to this um, different kind of food, in an in an easy way, Hashem made it easy for them. So in this case, chinam then is not metaphorical, really. It is talking about an ease um, and a freedom, or a, a free in terms of price with regard to the actual fish. So the Gemara um, goes on. So fine, we accept the. This is we understand what they're saying that they're talking about actual fish, right? We understand this view of arayot lo partsebahu. So the problem is this. The people who said that they were, according to the person who said that they're crying over fish, right, that they're complaining that they had this free fish in Egypt, right? So then were, the question, were they promiscuous in Egypt to begin with, right? Otherwise, this whole story doesn't make sense, right? We have a verse from Shir Hashirim that says that there's a garden enclosing my sister, the bride. Right, meaning that suggests that the that there was no promiscuity, certainly not amongst the Jewish women. They are being the Jewish women are being chased here. Chased meaning not run after, chased um pure, whatever. But then what about the person who says Arayot? My Ma'ayan Khatum. So then what does it mean if the person says that the verse is really talking about sexual promiscuity, then what does it mean? Mayan Khatum, a sealed spring. So the Gemara says, Mahanach lo So the Gemara says they weren't promiscuous with the relatives that would already be forbidden to them, meaning they're keeping the laws of incest, in incest, excuse me, to some degree anyway, right? It's not it's not chinam, everybody is just being sexually promiscuous in every which way. They were keeping some measure of um of uh, it's hard to say it's the Torah, right? But we know the Shavim Mitzvah B'nai Noach have already been given. They're keeping some kind of prohibition to some degree, but not the additional prohibitions that were given in the in the Midbar, and that's what they're complaining about. Meaning, what are you what are you limiting limiting us even further? And then the Gemara goes on. So this is just a comment on the structure, right? Again, it says, it's a, so now we understand this rationale according to that view, but what about the other view? And then it has to do the flip side as well. 
היינו דכתיבה ישמע משה את העם בוכה למשפחותיו. So fine, we understand that B'nai Israel were crying over their sexual, over the, pro, the new prohibitions about the sexual relations because we've got a verse that says that Moshe heard them crying about their families. Al iske mishpachotav shenesru lehem lishkav etzlam. So then we're talking about exactly this, that there's a, there's a prohibition of cohabitation, let's say, between them. Ela lamanda madagim. But then how do you explain those verses for the person, according to the one whose view it is, that the, that the comment about fish is really about fish. So the Gemara answers, both this and that happened, which I think is a, a really clever solution, right? Meaning, yes, they did cry about the additional r- rules against more sexual relations, right? The additional prohibitions. And they also cried that they didn't have the fish of Egypt. Meaning, instead of saying one of these interpretations is the correct interpretation, or leaving it as both interpretations can stand throughout, the conclusion is not that we're going to follow, not that we're going to say you could, you can side with which, which, whichever of these two views that you want, but rather both really happened. And that's a, another classic Amara move and very comprehensive, inclusive, if you will, to say that both, both interpretations are completely valid. Um, the Gemara goes on, and I'm not going to take more time here, but the, Gemara, the next bit of the Gemara does is the very famous discussion over what did the man taste like. And could it t- and everybody, you know, comes home from kindergarten or in my house, literally first grade. I heard this. We literally had this discussion two days ago over how the man could taste like anything you wanted. And, you know, which is not exactly what it says here on the staff, um, but close. It's just fascinating to me how it really toggles between two totally different interpretations of what this thing with the fish means. Um, I'm not totally sure what the Gemara is trying to do here. And they really go through and explore each opinion. You know, this is the type of thing where I think we learn to respect Midrash, right? Like you could just be like, oh, this is one person's opinion. It's how they understand it. This is another person's opinion. But the Gemara really takes the time here to go through each pasuk to say, like, how do these pasukim fit with this interpretation? And if you want to say it's the other inter- interpretation, how do the pasukim fit there? So I- I'm still not sure I totally understand what it's getting at exactly with that complaint about the fish. But I, the analysis of Tanakh through it is is really interesting to see. The other thing I think is that we see this kind of toggling. I like that. I like that term here. Um for halacha all the time, because there you're going to have a practical difference, right? And so you have to understand which the full argument and how each side is going to defend and and implement the different verses and so on, because at the end of the day, it's a different practice, yes or no, let's say, you know, us or mutter, whatever. And, and so you have to know. In this case, it's truly just tracing it through, because whatever the complaint was, there's no practical halacha to implement. Right. So it, yeah, you're saying exactly what I think I tried to say, but much better. So that's why it's so fascinating for them to take up so much time with it. Um, I'm yes. going to move on to the next section here that I thought was interesting. We're still only on Amar Aleph, I'm pointing out. Um, <laughs> and this sort of is a brisa that discusses sort of the judicial powers or something else that the Mun did besides just feed people. Tanya, we learned in a brisa. Rabbi Yossi Omer, Rabbi Yossi teaches. Right, so 
So just as a Navi would have told the Jewish people what were the what had holes and what had cracks. In other words, it would sort of highlight or explain the sins of the people. The Mun would also do the same thing for the Jewish people. Um, so two people came in front of Moshe for judgment. This one said, your slave, my slave, sorry, you stole from me. And the other one says, no, you, uh, you, you sold the slave to me. Moshe. So Moshe says, in the morning, you'll get the judgment. The next day, if in the next day, the portion of that slave was with the first house, meaning the person who said they stole the slave from, then we know that that slave was stolen because in other words, that person's food is still in the house that they're supposed to be in. But if it's in the second person's house, then we know that it was sold to that right person, um, that it was sold to that second person. And then it goes through an even more interesting case. A man and a woman who come to Moshe for judgment. And the husband says, she sinned against me. Right. And so therefore he wants to divorce her and doesn't have to pay the ketuba or pay the divorce settlement. And she says, no, he sinned against me. And therefore I want to get like my full settlement or whatever. Moshe says, the same thing in the morning, there will be judgment. The following day, if her portion is in her husband's house, then we know that she um, you know, she did, she sinned against him because in other words, her, her food, her portion uh, still was in his, ha- was still in, uh, was, was still in his house. Um, and it was her who acted inappropriately. But if her portion is in her father's house, then you know that he sinned against her. And really she, it is, a, it is right that she should be able to go back to her father's house. So is this what really happened or is what the brace of playing out here sort of the boundary of if we say that everybody got what they were supposed to get, you know, for the number of people in their house every single day. So then like they're sort of coming up, they're sort of trying to find the intersection between, you know, were there times where it was questionable who were the number of people or the portion that you were supposed to, you know, actually get every day. Um, and so therefore, what it does is it describes sort of this power to the man itself um, to sort of resolve these types of cases. Um, I, I, I just, again, I wish I had more time to sort of do a deeper dive into this, but a very interesting breakdown. I think it's wonderful. I have no problem thinking that this is exactly what happened, right? The same way that I can accept that the man came for every house by every person. So then the, if this is going to be the adjudication of where there's a legitimate complaint and where there isn't a legitimate complaint, I think it's wonderful. And then it's like a slap in the face for the people who don't have a legitimate complaint. And I'm like, uh, okay, now you have to go about your new business. If the man, you know, rearranged itself to be, to, to accommodate the shift in numbers. I think it's wonderful. But, uh, yeah. It, 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 right. And I think it's playing around with that. But I love, again, how granular they want to get with it. You know, like they just accept like, oh, yeah, it really was the exact number of people. No more, no less. 
Right, right. That's true. Um, okay, so I, I said this is really the daf of the man. If you ever, you know, in the future you want to come back and say, where does the Gemara talk about the man? This daf, right? Ayan hey in Yuma. Um, and it goes on, the again, Midrashim that you know about the man are all here. I don't know if they're all here, but there's a lot of them here. And one of them, um, now we're, now we've made it to Ahmed Bet, um, is talking about the dew. Right, that the dew in the morning, there would be a low layer of dew on the ground, and then the man would come, and then the man would be covered with a layer of dew as well. And this actually, not that this is in the Gemara here, but this is why this is one of the explanations that is given, although again, not here, um, for why we have both a challah tray and then a challah covering. Everybody knows the reason about the about you know the wine, uh, the brachot and the wine and so on. But another reason is the the two coverings from the from the the do about the man. Um, but then the Gemara goes on to talk about how, you know, it was, it describes what the man itself was. Dak mechus pas. It says it's like the fine, flaky kind of substance, which again, this is the real question, right? Don't we all want to know exactly what it is? On Amad Aleph, it talks about it being like from coriander seeds. And I don't know, meaning I don't know that there's no way for any of us to know ever, right? This is all the theorizing over what's going on. And then the Gemara has a really interesting discussion over, again, how to interpret these, these psukim. lechem abirim achal ish. So the Torah says, you know, in this is a verse from Tehillim, it says that man did eat the bread of the mighty. Lechem abirim, abirim is the mighty, the bread of the mighty, achal ish, a person ate. Right? So man ate the bread of the mighty. So Rabbi Kiva says, what is this bread of the mighty? It's the bread that the Malachi Hasharit, the ministering angels, ate this bread. And that's what Rabbi Kiva says. Okay. So that by itself is an interesting thought that there is something called Lechem Abirim, that is the bread of the greats. And the way and how do we distinguish who eats this bread? It's got to be the greats. The greats are going to be the ministering angels. But then, here's the Rabbi Kiva gave this interpretation. And he says to them, He doesn't call him Rabbi Akiva. Right? He says, Go out and tell Rabbi Akiva. Akiva, Taita. Rabbi Akiva, he doesn't say Rabbi. You've made a mistake. Since when do angels eat? They don't eat bread. Right, we know that Moshe himself, when he went up on Sinai, right, so he didn't eat and he didn't drink, and the implication is, right, that he was like the ministering angels. So clearly, lechem abirim can't be something that the ministering angels ate. Um, so rather, abirim should be understood to be that the bread is absorbed into all 248 limbs. These are the avarim of the body. And it is the 248 limbs comes up in the passage right before this in the Gemara. So now we understand a different interpretation of what lechem abirim could be. And But what is fascinating to me is the rebuke to Rabbi Akiva. Because Rabbi Akiva is known to be the halacha man. He's the one who... The famous story in Menachot, which we'll get to, please God, about how Hashem gave the Torah through him and Rabbi Kiva was able to 
darshan to explicate tilin tilin shalhalachot. He piles and piles of halachot from the crowns on the letters, right? And that's why it's the discussion there in Menachot is really about the scribal crowns on the letters. Why why are they there? So Rabbi Akiva can learn from them. And most of our Mishnah follows the opinion of Rabbi Akiva, meaning via Rabbi Meir, whatever, right? But it's it's this he is one of the most you know important pillars of halacha in the in the Talmud, in the Talmud Bavli, but I'm sorry, I don't mean the in the Mishnah is really what I'm talking about, which then of course is developed mostly in the Bavli, but fine. There's Rabbi Akiva. But when it comes to a Ganata, this kind of interpretation of Sukim, where we're going to say, oh, let's let's see where that takes us. This kind of interpretation that we had between Rav and Shmuel with the fish and the Arayot, or here, what is Lechamabirim? Right? This is a different kind of headspace. And Rabbi Akiva is rebuked for it here. And not only here, meaning we've talked about it in the past and we'll talk about it again. And I find it interesting. Nobody seems to have any hesitation to to poke at him and say, Rabbi Kiva, that's not a good idea. Here's why it's not a good idea. I mean, they, they treat it with respect. Well, he drops his Rebbe. So I don't know whether this was before Rabbi Kiva had achieved his prowess in halacha to begin with. And so he doesn't yet have the, the smicha to get the name Rabbi Akiva. And maybe that's why Rabbi Shmuel just calls him Akiva. Or if it's a demotion, because this is not a good idea, you don't get your Rebbe for this. Well, also remember that Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Kiva have two totally different ways of interpreting things. And I'm sure we'll find other Gemara's where we talk about this. Um, but yes, I, I know we've referred to before these Gemara's where Rabbi Akiva sort of gets rebuked, and this is a great example. I'm just going to end this episode with one quick comment about the Slav. Uh, which uh, there's a lot of discussion about the quail and that episode. And it's clear that quail's really considered to be a delicacy, especially the, the part in the Gemara here where it talks about that there's four types of quail. Slav is the worst one. Um, and then all these rabbis who sort of were given quail every day. And especially the story with Rav and Rabba. I don't know, like I have no desire to eat quail. I don't like duck and quail and things like that. Um, so but it, it certainly is considered to be like a very desired food. I've never had an opportunity to have quail. I'm not sure I'm running to find one, but yeah, I, this stuff didn't make me want to run to it either, but <laughs> I, I feel like we're missing out on something. I almost feel obligated to eat it or try it one time. I think it's the kind of thing also, it's going to really depend on preparation, how it's prepared, what the context is, what delicacies, you know, there's a lot of food that, that, depending on how it's served, it could be really great or really vile, you know, if it's mis misprepared. I would agree with that. Now I'm envisioning a mun quail sandwich after this stuff. <laughs> well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbanit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrant website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Mm-hmm.